All right, if you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. While it's a new chapter, it's the same theme. Don't know why they put a chapter mark in there, but they did. Providentially, it's almost a Mother's Day sermon, but not quite. Um, Maybe the mothers will be thinking they got ripped off this morning. I'm not sure. Um, All right. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. (coughs) Uh, Father, you have said that your grace is sufficient. And you have said that your strength is made perfect in weakness. And so may your strength be made perfect in my weakness this morning, in my physical weakness, in my mental weakness, in my spiritual weakness. that despite uh, my failings, your truth may encourage and edify your people, as well as exalting your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a brief moment when I wondered if Amy and I were actually going to get married. It wasn't so much uh, an us thing, although she was a little mad at me. The problem was more me and her pastor. We had been uh, having one of our uh, pre-marriage meetings, and we were going over the liturgy, and he wasn't happy with a couple of the words that were in the liturgy. I had adapted these from the... uh, prayer book of Edward VI. So they were old, and they were rich and meaningful to me, and he didn't like them. (laughs) There were two words in particular that he wasn't too excited about. One was her promise to obey, and the other was my promise to worship. I'll start with the second one. 
I had to explain to him that when I said I was going to say to my wife, I worship you, it was in the old English sense of, I serve you. That I was promising when I married my wife, not that I would put her on a pedestal and bow down before her, but that my life would be one of service to her. He sort of got over it. The other one, he had to ask her, Amy, are you okay with promising to obey? And she said, yes. (laughs) In 15 subsequent years of marriage, I have never once told her to obey me. I don't think that's necessarily my place to tell my wife to obey me. But that concept is one that is fairly controversial today. It's not controversial scripturally, but it is one that is a tough pill to swallow today because it seems like an antiquated kind of idea on the behalf of many people. And it's also been abused by an awful lot of other people. So, But for Peter, this was an important thing to communicate. And so I'm going to communicate it. The big idea this morning is that wives adorned with Jesus bring glory to God. <coughs> it's important for us to note that one of the most frequent words in here is not obey, although it does show up. It is adorned. And there's a question that's there about what is a wife adorned in? And that makes all the difference in the world. First off, godly wives adorn themselves with Jesus, who was obedient. You see, Peter is uh, still continuing this section about being subject in the institutions that are among men. But he's coming to a conclusion of that section. He's already talked about government. They moved a little bit closer in terms of um, masters in the house. And now he's going to the closest of all, marriage. Submission within the context of the family and the home and of marriage. And so he says, likewise, which could be misunderstood in some sense, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And now there, is, uh, there are some aspects of this that are very beneficial to the women, I think, who are listening here. This does not say, women, be subject to men. If anyone tries to teach that, they are going beyond Scripture. Women are not in subjection to men. That is a view that is called patriarchy. That is a view that is out of harmony with Scripture. And much abuse towards women has been done in the name of that. That is a misunderstanding because Peter, just like Paul as well, they both say, wives be subject to your own husband. The one that's yours. 
the one that you've already made a covenant with, that person, not just men in general or husbands in general. So. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> That's a good caveat, I think, to make, to sort of frame some of this discussion now. <clears throat> Now, this idea that Paul and Peter starts off, likewise, or in the same way, or in a similar fashion, he's tying this together with the uh, commands to submit in the other institutions that exist. And so there's some similarity that goes on in these things, but there's also some areas of dissimilarity. And it's important for us to note, before we really get deep into this, is that the submission of a, of a wife to her husband is not going to be the same in every way. It is, in fact, fundamentally different than our submission to the government and in our submission as domestics, so to speak, or in the workplace. You see, marriage was instituted by God, and it was instituted by God in the Garden of Eden, before the fall of man. And so when we think about, particularly uh, as Peter was writing, and, and Paul would as well, was writing to people about submission to their masters or the, the master of the house, that was within a, a fabric conditioned by sin. You see, slavery was not instituted by God. It would be regulated by God but it was not something that was instituted. But marriage was something that was instituted by God for the good of man and the good of the woman as well. Marriage is a one-flesh union that exists for mutual benefit, not simply the benefit of the husband, but also for the benefit of the wife. And if we don't Keep that in mind, we get very unbalanced in how we think about marriage and submission within it. But not only that, but marriage was given within the context of the <coughs> creation mandate. And so marriage existed in part because of the mission that Adam had received, that he was to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule it. And so he couldn't do that alone, and so God gave him a helper who was suitable for him, and the two of them together would do these things. And so marriage exists within the context of God's mission for the world. And so marriages today, for Christians, still exist within the context of God's mission for the world. And so your marriage isn't just about you and your spouse, as good that, as that is. But there's something bigger that God is at work in through your marriage. Okay? And if you shrink it down to you and your spouse, your marriage becomes very small and there becomes an even greater propensity, and there's already a great propensity, toward power struggle. 
Because if your marriage doesn't exist for God's mission, it's going to exist for your mission. And the two of you may have disagreements on what that mission is. So, we think of marriage and we think of, of uh, submission within the context of marriage. It really has this idea of, of the wife ordering herself under another human being, forsaking her own kingdom and agenda, not to fulfill the husband's kingdom or agenda, but ultimately to fulfill God's kingdom and agenda even if the man doesn't have that perspective. Even if he's not focused on God's kingdom and agenda, it's possible for her to submit to him out of God's kingdom and agenda. So, one of the ways that the likewise matters in this is that it does not depend upon the husband. We saw that before in terms of uh, domestic servants uh, obeying their master, whether it was a good and gentle master or a mean and nasty master. Here we see a similar thing. Whether your husband is a good husband or your husband is a bad, horrible husband. Peter calls them to do this. calls them to do this in part, I think. Because evangelism begins with respectful and pure conduct. Whether it's the evangelism of a spouse or evangelism of someone else, but he ties this all together. Submit, even those who don't obey the Word of God, so that you might win them without words by how you live. There are certain relationships that are touched by authority, and when the person who is under authority preaches the gospel to the person who has the authority, it is necessarily seen as insubordinate. like when the student tries to tell the teacher how to do the math problem. Something just doesn't seem right. It seems like a challenge to authority. Okay? And so what Peter is trying to clear out here is that unbelieving husband doesn't need a gospel Jiminy Cricket in his ear all the time. What he needs is a clear example of what Christianity produces in terms of character that adorns the Gospel. What that man needs is to see Jesus as clearly as he possibly can, and the avenue for which he can see Jesus clearly, according to Peter, is his wife, who was being remade in the image and likeness of her Savior. So, 
we see from history examples in which this has actually taken place. One of them is in Augustine's Confessions when he speaks about his mother Monica and how her husband Patricus was not a nice man. (laughs) He had a wandering eye and a wandering hand and a wandering everything else. He had a temper problem. And even though he had a temper issue, uh, she did not bear the scars that so many wives around them bore. And Augustine says that it was because she lived this. She was an example, not with her words, but with her lifestyle. She was respectful and pure in her conduct. And before he died, Patricus did, in fact, become a Christian through the work and the prayers, the tearful prayers of Monica, just as her son Augustine would eventually become a Christian through the tearful prayers of Monica. Part of what's going on in all of this <coughs> is, remember, remember our larger context of what's going on in, in the communities that Peter is writing to, and that part of that is they don't trust the Christians. They're they don't want, Peter does not want the Christians to come across as being subversive to society, as uh, people who are going to undo the social order. Because sometimes we think that because we've been freed in Jesus, that means that there's no longer any boundaries for us to respect. And what Peter is doing is reminding them that there are still boundaries of propriety for them to respect so that it goes well with them in the eyes of the people around them, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, so they do not suffer persecution. And so while their expression of marriage would be different from our expression of marriage, and uh, there was often a lot of uh, abuse that took place, and uh, Peter is not calling for them to overthrow the institution, but really the gospel begins by changing people, not institutions. And so he's not calling for protests. Because if you were to try and protest in Rome, in the Roman Empire, it would go about the same as it went for those people in Tiananmen Square in China and as it went recently for the people in Venezuela. It wouldn't play very well. And so Peter and Paul are both writing to people who have no social power. And so he's not talking about overthrowing the government and changing all of the institutions. He's preparing, they are both preparing people to live within the institutions they cannot change. So how do you live within that? Peter doesn't quite go there at this point. Uh, but it's, there's still the echo of it, remember, from the end of chapter 2. The idea of Jesus, who as it says in Philippians 2, being found in human form, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. And part of why I say that even so is that Paul introduces that with the concept of have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And what Peter says here is an application of that. If you have been united to Jesus Christ if you're a Christian woman. And so the power to walk in submission comes to you from Jesus Himself who walked in submission. The power to obey even when you don't agree comes from Jesus who obeyed even to the point of death. Now let me make a very important caveat. I am not saying that wives are to obey to the point of death. We are not to justify domestic violence on the basis of this text. Women in that day could not really go somewhere else. Domestic violence, I believe, is one of the things that breaks a covenant vow. Women don't have to stay. Churches should discipline men who hit their wives. So, having gotten that out of the way, okay, I, I, I don't want to be misunderstood to think that this somehow means that it's okay for women to be mistreated. But united to Christ, they have the power and the ability to begin to say yes even when they want to say no. <coughs> and so one way that wise revealed Jesus to the world is joyful submission in the context of marriage. Secondly, the godly wives adorned themselves with Jesus who was gentle and quiet. And see here, uh, Peter is expanding upon this idea of pure conduct. He's doing it negatively and then he's doing it positively in this language of adornment that keeps popping up. And so starts with saying, do not let your adornment be external. Don't put all of your focus on how you look how you present yourself to the world because we do tend to, men and women, focus on these things, but women probably tend to do this a little more. Peter's not the only one who said this. We find it as well in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But let's be wise about this. <coughs> in both contexts, it seems to be that they are largely concerned with displays of wealth which heighten the economic differences with, between people within the congregation. Okay? Uh, it's, it's dressing up 
like it's Saturday night and you're going to an elegant ball and you've got the poor person who has no such clothes sitting a few rows over. That really seems to be more of his point. It's not an absolute prohibition upon braids. Elizabeth, it was okay. I saw those pictures. I didn't think, oh my goodness, how could she? The braids that they were wearing were usually braids that were very expensive because they wove precious metals through them to show off wealth. These dresses that they were wearing were very extravagant sort of dresses. And so this is not a call to be frumpy. This is not a call. It's not. It doesn't mean, you know, women wear gym shorts and sweatshirts. That's not anything like what Peter has in mind. We've all seen in this last election, we had, we had uh, one spouse who displayed her wealth in a beautiful um, clothing, and then we had one candidate who displayed her wealth with very frumpy clothing that looked like it was from Soviet Russia. Um, they were both very expensive wardrobes. Okay, so it's not frumpiness that matters. But Peter wants them and wants us to focus not on the fleeting and the fashionable, but on the eternal and the imperishable. But we tend to focus on the fleeting and fashionable because we have more control over that. It's easier to put your hair in braids, I would imagine. I don't have hair um, to put in braids. <clears throat> It's easier to do that. It's easier to buy a dress. It's easier to, um, those sorts of things. Put on makeup and jewelry. That's easier than cultivating the inner person. Which is what he's going to call them to do. Let their adornment be the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. This is Christ-like character. We see in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And so when we put on Jesus, part of what women are intended to put on is his gentle and quiet spirit as opposed to a spirit that clamors to get its own way. A spirit that is argumentative. We all know those people. Perhaps you are that person. But every discussion seems to end in a debate. You have to win. You have to be right. That is precious in your eyes. It's not precious in God's eyes. What he finds precious instead is this gentle and quiet spirit that doesn't have to have its own way. <coughs> that isn't demanding to have its voice. And I think I have to say once again, don't get me wrong. 
I got to throw up my caveat there. Okay? Women can be strong. Women can have really good opinions. Women, in the, in the context of their marriage, should be able to express those strong opinions if they have them. The difference is what happens after you express the opinion. And the decision goes contrary to your opinion. Is there an endless stream of criticism, of complaint, of whining, of self-pity? Or is there, Jesus, I don't understand, but help me to support and encourage, despite the fact that I think this is the dumbest thing this man has ever done. Because we men can do some really dumb things. If you want some lessons on that, I think he might be offering. Um, okay, um, I can probably offer a few too. Um, this is about working together, but recognizing that when a decision is made, it's, it's sort of like uh, this, this is a, you know a little different, but the session when we make a decision. It doesn't matter whether I agree with the decision or not. And actually, I don't vote. So all those decisions that they make, <laughs> it's all their fault. Um, no. But there can be decisions that an individual elder disagrees with, and unless it's sin, you just roll with it. You don't continue to complain and whine about it. You begin to support it to the best of your ability. And sometimes we have to ask God for help to do that. It's okay. It's all right. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the joys of strep. Um, now, what's, what's also important is to recognize that God is not telling husbands to make their wives submit. It's not my role to tell my wife to submit. When we were early in our marriage, there were a couple times, I didn't say that, I was not that foolish, but I was foolish enough to go, don't you trust me? And, well, you know, she she obviously had to have trusted me a little bit to marry me, but... Trust is developed over time. And so the longer you're married and the the track record of decisions, the the, the trust factor will go like this, okay? Um, Martin Luther notes, for you will never succeed by blows in making a wife pious and submissive. So um, even in Martin's day, he had the wisdom to recognize this kind of thing. But rather, how does this happen? How does this quiet and gentle attitude be produced? I think Martin Luther, once again, a Christian soul has all that Christ has for faith 
brings us at once all the blessings of Christ. And so we're united by faith to Jesus who is gentle and begins to grant us His gentleness. Who is quiet and begins to grant His quietness to His people. And then He also brings us into particular situations in order to develop those traits. That there are opportunities to seek His help in the midst of our weakness. And so there will be opportunities when you have to recognize, I need to be gentle, but I'm anything but right now. I'm mad like a don't know what. I'm mad like a Steve Cavallaro. Um, And I need help being gentle. I'm clamoring inside. I want to yell and scream and nag and everything else. I need you to help me be quiet. And seeking the grace of God in the midst of those moments. So godly wives grow in submission by seeking a gentle and quiet spirit from Jesus. And thirdly, a godly wives hope in God, not in husbands. You see, Peter points them and to us, to these holy women of the past, but he mentions here, likewise, in the same way, they hoped in God. Which connects back with the end of chapter two. Remember, the, you know, in the midst of unjust suffering, they were supposed to entrust themselves into the hands of Him who judges rightly, uh, because Jesus has done that very thing. And so, when you have a husband who doesn't just rightly um, <coughs> or judge rightly, you're hoping in God who does. Their hope was not to be in their husbands. Their hope was not to be in getting their own way, but that rather that God would do right even through the husband who's bungling it up. And that takes a lot of faith. Peter says that they adorned themselves by submitting. And so part of their, their uh, instead of bracelets and necklaces and earrings and, and braids and all of those things, I feel pretty, oh so pretty. <laughs> their true adornment was submission. What made them really beautiful was submission. And so it is this hope in Christ, this hope in God, uh, that is really the foundation for submission. And he mentions that Sarah obeyed Abraham. And she called him Lord. And now there's one place in the Septuagint, Exodus, uh, sorry, not Exodus, Genesis 18, uh, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? the pleasure of a child. Do you think it was easy to be Abraham's wife? To deal with the barrenness? 
and you're not sure who's to blame, even though you probably feel you are, and everyone probably thinks you are. That's what I learned in my own infertility issue, is sometimes it's not the wife, or only the wife. You think it was easy when he came up with these lame-brained ideas in Egypt and in Canaan? Tell them I'm your your brother. You think it was easy to be that old and a nomad? It was not easy. And she was not perfect when we look in Genesis. Genesis. Both of them struggled with trying to fulfill God's promises through their own flesh, through their own really bad ideas. (coughs) Both of them would need Jesus to bear their sins. And the reality is, is that both spouses in a marriage need Jesus to bear their many sins. And yet, what we see Peter here saying essentially is, that Abraham and Sarah are the parents of the faithful who must trust instead of fear. We're used to hearing about Abraham as the father of the faithful. But the Scriptures also speak of her as the father of the faithful. Isaiah 51, verse 2, Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. She was integral to all of that in God's plan. In Galatians 4, we see this injunction, Brothers, you are not children of the slave, but of the free woman, Sarah. And so even us men are children of Sarah. But here at the end, he introduces something that I wish he would have introduced at the beginning because then it would have made a whole lot more sense of everything that that follows, and that is the problem of fear. Fear, I believe, is one of the two ultimate roots of failure to submit. The other one, of course, being pride. I know better. But fear is the other one. It is the fear that this person does not have my best interest in mind. It is the fear, legitimate in that case, okay, that this person is only out for themselves. But it can also be the fear that God cannot protect me. It can be the fear, illegitimate, that God does not care. Fear drives a lack of submission. Fear drives the clamoring. It drives the complaining. It drives the disobedience. It was fear, along with pride, that led Eve to eat the fruit in the Garden of Eden. And it is fear that drives people to fight for control in marriage. Our fear is only diminished when we look to Christ crucified. Because when we look to Christ crucified, 
we know he has our best interest in mind. Because we see a love that sacrificed everything. We can say, as as Paul says in Romans 8, shall not God who did not spare His only Son not give us everything we need? In other words, you don't have to be afraid anymore. And so gazing upon the cross can begin to melt that fear that we experience so that we can begin to trust God even if we don't trust our spouse. So marriage is complicated by sin and in any number of ways. There are unfortunately some husbands who do try to lord it over their wives. There are some cultures that oppress women horribly. There are some men and some churches that use truth to abuse women. Uh, There are also women who fearfully seek their own best interest in the face of the men who seek their own sins. (coughs) Peter isn't calling for this to be kind of uh, ongoing and continuous, but Peter is actually calling for wives, and later he'll call husbands. We'll get there next week, don't worry. Um, He is calling for wives to submit out of reverence for Christ, to trust God to be at work through two very imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. And so Peter is calling for wives to engage in God's priorities in marriage, to pursue a quiet and gentle spirit that doesn't have to get its own way. And again, this is only gained by putting on Jesus, by being adorned with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, I hope I have not spoken untruth this morning. But I know that there's also what I say and how people hear what I say, and I pray for protection of that. That it would, in fact, encourage people, not discourage, not overwhelm them, not be seen as um, justifying or perpetuating abusive situations. But dealing with the ordinary struggles of a husband and a wife, of sinners who need help sorting through the, the struggles of marriage. Father, this is not just for women. We recognize that men need to be quiet and gentle too. At times, because Jesus was quiet and gentle. That men also need to be respectful and chaste. So we pray for all of us that uh, who are united to Jesus, that you would be making these things more and more apparent in our lives. So that whether uh, we are wives who quietly submit, gently submit, 
or husbands who are called to quietly and gently lead, your grace would be sufficient to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.